And so chapter 14 of Mark's gospel, if you will turn there, and we'll begin reading at verse 32. Now, as we opened up chapter 14 last time, you recall that Jesus was spending his last night with his disciples before his crucifixion. And he was celebrating Passover with them in Jerusalem, and they would be in an upper room, and Jesus uh, would institute, first of all, the Lord's Supper as he took the bread and broke it and said, this is my body broken for you. And then he would say that take the cup and saying, this is my blood in the new covenant, which is shed for many. And Jesus also in that upper room would be talking to them about how that one of you is going to deny me and uh, all of you are going to be made to scatter from me uh, on this night. You're going to be made to stumble because of me and you're going to, to scatter as the shepherd is struck. And so we saw Peter at that time, he would speak up and say, hey, all these other guys may be made to stumble and fall, but yet I will not. I, I won't deny you. I'll die with you. I'll stand by you. And we know that it was our Lord that would say to Peter that even this night, Peter, before the rooster crows twice, you will have denied me three times. And so now we see that they leave that upper room. They make their way through Jerusalem. They cross the Kidron Valley. They go up on the side of the Mount of Olives. And we're going to see now the arrest of Jesus that will lead to his crucifixion the next day but let's read in verse 32 of mark chapter 14 then they came to a place which was named gethsemane and he said to his disciples sit here while i pray and why don't we pray before we continue on father we desire to right now just uh, have our hearts open to your word and your word lord is like a sword as we're going to see peter's going to pull out a sword but Lord, we want your word to do its work in our hearts, in piercing our hearts. And Lord, your word is like the seed, that seed that's planted there. And Lord, may our hearts right now be as fertile soil. And I pray that you would help us be attentive, that we would be still, that uh, Lord, that we would be open to the things that you desire to teach us and to show us. And as we make application that we would always be a people that are teachable. So bless this time in the study of your word, and it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. And so the word Gethsemane, as they're headed into that garden, it means olive press. And the Mount of Olives, as you might guess, was uh, really an orchard. And when you hear that word garden or garden of Gethsemane, sometimes we think of gardens uh, that are like in this part of the country, we, we think of a garden, a rose garden. We think of a garden that has annuals, perennials, maybe some beautiful flowering shrubs, things like that. Well, this garden wasn't that way at all. Matter of fact, it's still uh, the Garden of Gethsemane is in place. And what it is, is it's an olive orchard. And the word Gethsemane means olive press. It, it was a press, an olive press, that when they would take the olives, they would put it in that olive press, and they would, of course, extract the oil from the olives. And so here is Jesus in Gethsemane, olive press. And Jesus, he's going to be pressed, isn't he? He's going to be pressed in his soul as this is a very difficult time for him as he makes his way to the garden there on the slopes of the Mount of Olive. And so he's going to be praying. He's going to be sweating great drops of blood. And we read in verse 33, and he took Peter, James, and John with him, and he began to be troubled and deeply distressed. So Jesus here in the garden, 
knowing that his hour is at hand. And one of the things that, as you go through the gospel narratives, you read that Jesus oftentimes would say, my hour is not at hand. For example, in John chapter 2, when it was Mary wanting Jesus to work this miracle uh, in turning water into wine, it was Jesus that said initially that my hour has not come. We know that there have been other times when, for example, up in the Galilee region, when the people wanted to crown him as the Messiah, that he said, my hour has not come. And so Jesus now is saying, my hour has come. It has come for me to die for the sins of the world. So he knows this time is at hand, and the one who knew no sin is going to be made sin for you and for me. He's going to take our sins upon himself, and there's going to be intense suffering that will go along with that, and Jesus knows that. And so this is a very troubling time for Jesus, a very intense time for Jesus. And he is troubled and deeply distressed, as the text tells us here. So here, really, the sufferings of Jesus begins as he knows what is going to be happening to him in the next few verses. And he comes to the garden and he prays. And he takes his inner circle with him, Peter, James, and John. And we know that as we've been traveling through Mark's narrative here, that there were times that Jesus would take Peter, James, and John to see special miracles. And here he takes them so they could sit with him while he prays. Hey, be with me, sit with me. And I find that very intriguing because Jesus had just gotten through telling those disciples that you guys are going to be made to scatter. You're going to run away. And it wasn't just Peter that was saying, hey, I'll stand by you. I'll, I'll be with you. I'll, I'll fight for you. It wasn't Peter, but the text tells us that it was all of them that were saying that. They were all giving their allegiance and, and saying, Lord, we're going to serve you. We're going to stand by you. We will fight for you. We will even die for you. And sometimes in our own lives, we will come to that place where we say, Lord, you know what? I'm going to live for you. I'm going to walk with you. I'm going to serve you. I'll even die for you, Lord. But here's the key. Before you can do that, you need to learn to sit with him. And you need to learn to fellowship with him. And just to, to be able to hear his voice. And here he's saying, okay, guys, you know what? It's like as you look at this, he, here are these guys giving their allegiance. I'm going to, to die for you, and I'm going to live for you, and I'm not going to run away. But will you even just sit with him? Will you even watch for a little bit? And you and I as Christians, if we desire to be strong for the Lord, and I know that you do, and the commandment of the Word of God is to be strong and good courage, that first we need to learn how to sit with Him and just fellowship and take in and be with Him. That's what we need to do. And then when the time comes of temptation in our own lives, that we will be able to be strong and to live for Him and to be able to work in a way in our own lives that is pleasing to God as He works through us. And so it was His desire for these three guys just to sit with Him. Peter, James, and John, just sit. Sit here while I pray and work through this time. In verse 34, Then He said to them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch. So Jesus now beginning to, to feel some of those emotions that he had, is contemplating as he knows the events that are going to be taking place in the next day. 
And perhaps he's beginning to, to weep a little bit, breathing heavily. He, he is not his normal self. His disciples have really never seen him like this before. And he confesses to them that my soul is exceedingly sorrowful unto death. And maybe there's been a time in your life where you were exceedingly sorrowful. Maybe there was a time in your life where you were deeply distressed and you were greatly troubled. And the Lord knows how that feels because he went through that time here in the garden. He knows how it is when your soul is, is troubled and distressed, when it, you are sorrowful even unto death. And Jesus is feeling those emotions. And he knows, our great high priest, that he knows every temptation that we go through because he's been through it himself. And so verse 35, so he went a little further and fell on the ground and he prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me, nevertheless, not my will, but what you will. So Abba, we know, is just another word for Father. Father, if it is possible, take this cup away from me. Now, what cup is he talking about? He's talking about the cup of suffering and death that he's about ready to take on, the sufferings of the cross, dying on that cross. Lord, if it is possible, Father, Father, Abba, if it is possible, take this cup away from me. And then there's a colon in the text. In other words, the colon signifies a space of time. If it is possible, let this hour pass from me. Take away the cup of, of suffering and death. But then he says something very important. He says, not my will, but your will be done. In other words, Father, here, here is my heart. I'm greatly troubled and distressed and, and sorrowful. And, and Lord, if it is possible... If I don't have to go through the sufferings, but the key is this, not my will, but your will be done. And Jesus could submit to the Father's will because he understood the nature of the Father. He knew that the Father was going to be glorified in this, that, that he was going to be exalted in this as well. Abba, I know, Father, that you only intend what is best in eternity's values and views, that you're going to be glorified, that people are going to come to salvation because of my death on Calvary's cross. That there's going to be great joy that's going to follow the sorrow that I am feeling. I just want to remind us that the greatest prayer of faith that anyone can make is when you say, Lord, here is my perspective. Here is my intentions. Here is my desires. Here is my wants, Lord. Here are my concerns. But Lord, not my will, but your will be done because you are Abba. You are my Father. You're not an angry God. You're a good and faithful and loving God. And Father, whatever your will is for me, I believe that that is a sign of a mature, secure Christian, one who says, Lord, Father, your will be done. That's what I want for my life. Not one who is commanding and demanding, but one who realizes that, Father, you desire to give me all good things as Roman declares, and if you don't want me to have this thing or go in that direction or... Uh, to experience this circumstance or whatever it might be for you and for me, Lord, I know that you're going to do what is best for me. So, Lord, I submit to you. Father, I submit to you in my life. And what do you want to do in my life and through my life? Father, not my will, but your will be done. And that's what I hope and pray for all of us that are here, that that is our mindset, that's our heart. And listen, if that is not your heart, then you're going to miss out on all that God wants to do in your life. 
But coming to that place of saying, Lord, I just surrender to you. And I may not understand all that you're doing in my life or the direction right now that I'm going or, or you know, Lord, I, I may not understand why you're withholding this thing from me. But I do know that you're going to do what is best for me. You've already given me the very best in your son, Jesus Christ. And I know that you're going to do the very best in my life now in eternity's perspective. And so here is Jesus giving that prayer. But one more point I'd like to make that this is very important. And I know that I've spoken on this a few times, but I want to make sure that all of us here at Calvary Chapel understand this, what the truth of God's word is saying, that in this prayer, as Jesus is submitting to the Father and going to the cross, it shows us that there's only one way to salvation. And that is through the cross of Calvary, the shed blood of Jesus. Father, if there's any possible way that this cup can be taken from me. In other words, what Jesus was saying is, if there's any other possible way for a man or a woman to come into salvation, then I don't need to take on the cup of suffering and death. If salvation can be obtained by works or by religion or being a good person or believing in another religious leader, it, it can be attained by being wealthy enough or good-looking enough or smart enough. If there is any other way at all, then I don't need to take on this cup of suffering and death. I don't need to go to the cross. But the fact that the Father's will was indeed for him to go to Calvary and the fact that Jesus submitted to Calvary and the sufferings thereof, matter of fact, it is later on when they come to arrest Jesus that Jesus said, indeed, I'm going to drink of the cup that the Father has given me to drink. I'm going to submit to the will because there's no other hope for you and for me. It shows us there's no other way to personal salvation. It's only through the cross of Calvary. You cannot be saved by being a good person. You cannot be saved by being a religious person. You cannot be saved by your own works. You cannot be saved by your own efforts. You can't be saved by belonging to a church or hearing a Bible study, as good as those things are. It is only by faith and trust in Jesus Christ, believing in what he has done for you on dying on Calvary's cross. And then he rose from the grave three days later that gives us a living hope, as Peter writes in his epistle. If it is possible, he knew it wasn't. And he submitted to the will of the Father. And the reason that you and I are here celebrating and rejoicing and and singing is because we rejoice in what Jesus Christ has done for us. We have hope. We have salvation and forgiveness of sin because of the cross at Calvary. So here is Jesus giving that prayer in verse 37. Then he came and found them sleeping, that is his inner circle, and said to Peter, Simon, are you sleeping? Could you not watch one hour? Notice that he said to Peter, Simon. He didn't call him Peter. Now remember that Simon, that was his original name when he was called as a fisherman there up in the Sea of Galilee. And then his name was changed up at Caesarea Philippi as Jesus was there with his disciples. And he asked them, who do men say that I am? Well, Peter pipes up and he says that you're the Christ, the son of the living God. It was a wonderful, wonderful time in Peter's life. And oh, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, Jesus said to him. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And now your name is going to be Petra, or that is little stone. You're going to be called Peter, which means rock. And so now it's back to Simon. Shifting sand, that's what Simon means. Unstable is what it means. Simon, shifting sand, sleepeth thouest. Couldn't you watch one hour? Oh, verse 38, watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. 
we need to understand that prayer is not only for petitioning for what we desire, but do you know that prayer is for protection as well? From that which you don't want to happen? Things I know happen to me as I can fall into temptation and tribulations and difficulties and make bad decisions because I'm not praying and I'm not seeking the Lord's wisdom. I'm not seeking His direction. I'm not seeking His strength in a certain situation. And I end up failing. And it can happen to all of us. And so Jesus here is saying, watch and pray lest you fall into temptation. So prayer is not only for petitioning, but also for protection. Peter, couldn't you just watch and pray for one hour? And we will see that Peter, he, he's here given his allegiance on this night to Jesus. He's ready to resist the you know, attack of the soldiers and anyone who's going to come and get Jesus and whatever's going to take place, I'll die for you. But he couldn't resist the attack of the Sandman here. So he's falling asleep. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. In verse 39, again, he went away and prayed and spoke the same words. And when he returned, he found them asleep again. For their eyes were heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And then he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? It is enough. The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. We know from the other gospel accounts, three times Jesus prayed. And three times Jesus checked to see if his disciples would stand by him in prayer and to see if they would be praying for their own strength in the coming trial. They were asleep each time. So the question that we can ask ourselves, and just an honest evaluation, as we go to the Lord this morning, has, is this. How often does Jesus check in on us and find us asleep? How often in this last week? How often in this last month or in this last year? That the Lord finds us asleep, that he finds us being distracted, finds us not paying attention. And we know that the command in Scripture, and we see it often in the New Testament, is, is to watch and to be, be sober and be vigilant. Pay attention, take heed, you know. That's the way that we are to be as Christians. But how oftentimes, when the Lord checks in on us, does he find you and me sleeping? And he finds the disciples here sleeping. He did it three times. They're asleep. And so finally he says, it is enough. And, and sleep, take your rest is what he says. And I believe that at this point that Jesus sat down and he says, I'm just going to watch over them. And I believe that he just prayed for them. And that encourages me. Because I know that there have been times in my own life that the Lord has checked in on me. And I should have been watching and I should have been praying, but I was sleeping or I was distracted or I was apathetic, lethargic in my walk with him. And the Lord doesn't just say to me and he doesn't say to you, well, forget it. I'm leaving you. Uh, I'm just going to go away. You notice that in the Gospels, Jesus always said, come. He never said, get away. He said, come. And I believe at this point, he said that, you know what? I'm just going to sit and I'm going to watch over these guys. Yes, he said to them, can't you watch with me? But now I'm going to watch over you. And he sits down and he watches over them. And I believe that he was praying for them in the temptations and the trials that they were about ready to go through. And I am so thankful that Jesus, that he's our mediator, he's our intercessor, that sits at the right hand of the Father, always making, always making, not sometimes, but always making intercession for you and for me. He's praying for Pastor Jeff. 
He's praying for you. He's watching over us. Sometimes we believe that the Lord isn't watching us. Have you ever felt that in your life? Have you ever felt like, Lord, I'm in this situation. I'm up to you know, my neck in, in troubles and difficulties or wondering or I feel weak. And are you even watching me, Lord? You can know that he's watching you. And he loves you. And he's going to intercede on your behalf. And he's going to work in your life for good for those who love him who are called according to his purposes. So as he sits down and he's watching over them, there's now a time gap between verses 41 and 42. How long? We don't know. <clears throat> could be 15 minutes. Could be half hour. Could be an hour. Could be two hours. But then all of a sudden in verse 42, rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. He says, arise, get up, guys, because my betrayer is at hand. And you know the reason why Jesus could stand up, why he could arise? I'll tell you why he could. Because first he knelt down. He could stand up, he could arise in this hour of difficulty, in this hour where he's deeply troubled and distressed and greatly sorrowful. He could arise and stand up because first he had bowed down. He had been prayer to his father. And then he would have the strength at this moment when they come to arrest him. And it's very important for you and I to understand this, that you're going to find strength, that you're going to be able to arise and stand up when you face those times where you are troubled and distressed and you are sorrowful or those hours, you know, in times of temptation. If, first of all, you have spent time on your knees praying to the Lord, then you will be able to rise up for the occasion. At first, you've knelt down in prayer to the Father. And I know that you want to be strong in your life. I don't think there's probably a single person, or, or at least most of us, if not all of us, in this room, we're saying, I want to be strong for you, Lord. I want to be a strong husband. I want to be a strong wife. I want to be a strong mother, father. I want to be a strong servant for you, Lord. I want to stand for you. Of course we do. We want to be strong in the responsibilities that we have and the situations that we face. Fathers, I know that you want to be strong for your families, especially in the day in which we're living in. You, you want to rise up? Then you need to, first of all, kneel down to your father. You need to be praying for your family. You need to be praying for your kids. You need to go to the one who's going to give you that strength. And so very important for us to understand, if we want to be strong in the Lord, which is the command, be strong good courage, then prayer is going to be a very important part of that. In verse 43, and immediately while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, with a great multitude with swords and clubs, came from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now his betrayer had given them a signal, saying, Whomever I kiss, he's the one, seize him, and lead him away safely. And as soon as he had come, immediately he went up to him and said to him, Rabbi, Rabbi, and kissed him. And then they laid their hands on him and took him. And one of the, those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And so this contingency of soldiers come. We know from John's gospel that it was a detachment of troops. That means it was 600 soldiers that came. And I imagine that Jesus, his disciples are sleeping there. And Jesus, as he's on the Mount of Olives, he could see the torches, the line of soldiers that are coming out of Jerusalem and across the Kidron Valley and into the Garden of Gethsemane. 600 of them with those torches, with clubs, with swords. They have ropes to bind him up. And they are coming after him. And they're led by Judas, the betrayer. 
to arrest Jesus. And Jesus says, Arise, my betrayer is at hand. And so while the disciples were sleeping, we know that here are Jesus' enemies coming to get him and come against him. Do you realize that if you are sleeping spiritually, guess who's going to come after you? It's going to be the enemy. He's going to come after you to try to beat you up. He's going to come after you to try to do you in. He's going to come after you to try to bind you up somehow in, in deceiving you and pulling you into temptation. Know this, that if you are sleepy spiritually, that the enemy is going to be coming for you. And here the enemies of Jesus are coming for him to take him. And Judas said, the one that I greet with a kiss, he's the one that you are to arrest. And when Judas did that, we know that Jesus would say to him at that point, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? And then they put their hands on Jesus to arrest him. Now we know that the one who took out the sword to cut the ear of the high priest's servant, who was that? That was Peter. That was Peter. Peter who was saying, I'll never deny you. I'll never leave you uh, in his seal to sh show the Lord that he was still with them. I'm going to fight for you, Lord. He pours, pulls out his little sword. The original language indicates that it was a little dagger, about a foot and a half long that he pulls out. And he begins to swing it. And he goes after Malchus, who's the servant of the high priest. I think he's, you know, going for his head. And he missed. But he did get an ear. And the ear plops off and falls on the ground. We know from the other Gospels that Jesus healed that ear. He picked it up off the ground, put it back on Malchus's head. Then he told Peter, Peter, put away the sword. Matthew Gospel tells us that Jesus said to Peter, don't you know that I can call and pray to my Father and I can call down 12 legions of angels. All I have to do is speak the word. I can have 120,000 angels come down. Jesus could have just simply spoken, Peter, put the sword away. Don't you understand that I am going to drink the cup that the Father has given me to drink? I'm going willingly. I'm going freely to the cross for you, Peter. I can call down 12 legions of angels. He could have destroyed those soldiers. He could have destroyed Judas. He could have destroyed Jerusalem. He could have destroyed the whole world and started over again. He was perfectly within his rights as God to do that. Put it away, Peter. Because I'm going to go to the cross. And I'm submitted to my Father. And there is no hope for you, Peter, or for these soldiers, or anyone in Jerusalem, or anyone that is here today, if I don't go to the cross. And I'm going to go because of my love for you. My love for you, Peter. And his love for you that are here today. I'm going to go to the cross, Peter. Put it away. And we're going to see that it's at this time that all the disciples here run away. They flee, just as he told them they would. So the shepherd will be struck and the sheep will scatter. One minute, Peter seems to be so strong. I mean, it took a lot of courage for Peter to do this, to take out a sword, and he's going to take on 600 soldiers. It gets an ear, and then all of a sudden, the next minute, he's running away. So what's going on? Well, I want to suggest to you four things that you might want to jot down. Number one, that Peter, you're fighting the wrong battle. Peter, you're fighting the wrong battle. In Ephesians chapter 6, when it talks about spiritual warfare, that it is Paul the Apostle that would say to us, as it is the enemy that comes against us, and we need to be strong in the Lord. But he says we don't battle with flesh and blood. 
but against principalities and powers and spiritual wickedness in high places. And if you are one that is fighting with people, that you need to understand you're fighting the wrong battle. And here is Peter with this sword. He's swinging it around. He, he gets in there. Okay, who's going to be next? Peter put it away. And I know I've made reference to this. I did on Wednesday night in Deuteronomy chapter 20. When the Lord was giving instructions to his people, the children of Israel, before they went into the promised land, he said, when it comes to warfare, when it comes to you going in and doing battle, when you go into the promised land and you take a city, make sure that you don't destroy those trees that bear fruit because they can be food for you. They can benefit you. They can be a blessing to you. And I know that I've even in my own life has had a tendency to take out my sword or take out my axe and start swinging it around and start chopping on those and cutting on those rather than being blessed by them and those who are bearing fruit, those who can benefit me in the body of Christ. And if we have a tendency to take our axes and our swords out and start cutting on those rather than benefiting and being blessed, we're missing out. So we need to be careful that if you're involved with fighting with people, you're going about it all wrong, that we need to understand something, that our battle, our warfare is not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, spiritual wickedness in high places. Certainly it leaves room for correction and rebuke and instructions, but it's always done out of love. Not only was it the wrong battle, it was the wrong time, Peter. That's the second point. It's the wrong time. Because, Peter, I'm going to the cross. That's why I came to this earth. It is now my hour. And there will come a time when it's the right time as Jesus will come again. In Revelation chapter 19, it tells us that when he does come again, out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, a two-edged sword. He will simply speak as the end of the tribulation period comes, at the end of the ages, when the battle of Armageddon has taken place there in the valley of Megiddo, when all those nations are there in that valley fighting against each other. And we know that when Jesus comes back in the second coming of Jesus Christ, and we're going to come back with him riding on white horses, as we are told, Jude says, behold, he comes with ten thousands of his saints. That's you and me. We're going to come back with him. And as the army of the Lord comes, led by Jesus, then he will simply speak the sword coming from his mouth. And he will strike those nations. And then it will be the judgment of the nations. That will be a time when he will establish his kingdom. That's going to be the right time when there is the Lord going to put down those who come against him. But it's not today, Peter, because my first coming is to die as the suffering servant, the suffering Messiah who is dying for you. So not only was it, as we read point number one, you're fighting the wrong battle. Second of all, it was the wrong time. But Peter, you did it in an ungodly motive. You did it with an ungodly motive, Peter. Jesus speaks the sword, Revelation chapter 19. You see, the word of God, Hebrews chapter 4, is likened to a two-edged sword. And as we use the word of God, it is to be used in a way that it pierces the hearts of people, that it touches them deeply, even in those times where we have to bring instruction and correction and rebuke in people's life. We do it out of a motive of love and restoration for there to be repentance. But sometimes you can use the Word of God to do a lot of damage. 
And oftentimes it is done to try to prove how spiritual that you are. I can do it to try to prove how spiritual I am. And we pull it out the word of God, you brood of vipers, who can escape the condemnation it is to come to you. You are of your brother, the devil. And I've heard people say that. I've worked with people in the community that they had a pastor who came along and called them the devil and called them, you know, Jezebel, you know, one of the ladies. And she's going, I don't even know who that is in all of this. Just, you know, blasting away at them. No edification, no encouragement, no instructions given to them, any of that. They're going, Pastor Jeff, what are you, why are they doing that? And we can use the word of God to kind of say wham to you and wham to you and wham to you. And all of a sudden, plop, 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 and start cutting ears off. And I just wonder if the Lord would say to us, at least, be careful. You be careful with that sword. And you use it in the right way. And you use it with love and with gentleness. And you use it in a way that honors me. Do you realize that people generally do not care how many Bible verses we know until they know that there is genuine love of the Lord that is coming from us towards them? And I think that there are times that we need to ask the Lord if we have that tendency where we like to go around cutting ears off and we can do it in using the Word of God. And I'll tell you the truth, if you have a tendency to do that, see, people are going to turn their ears off to you. But I see here in the text that the Lord is so good because he puts Malchus's ear back on. If he had not have done that, Peter would have been arrested and he would have been in big trouble. And I know that there have been in my life a few times where I've chopped a few ears off. And in the Lord's goodness and in his faithfulness and in his long-suffering, he put those ears back on. As I heard him say, put it away, Jeff. Put that sword away. And he's given me opportunity to really minister in a way that brings that motive of restoration and correction and repentance and desire for them to know the truth. I'm just saying be careful when you're using the sword of the word. Use it in the right way, in a way that honors the Lord. The fourth principle here is Peter, you know, he's doing it out of the flesh here. Point number four. Here, Jesus told him that he's going to deny him. And Peter, he's given his allegiance in that upper room. No, I'm not. These other guys might, but not me. I'm not going to deny you, Lord. He goes to the garden. He finds Peter asleep. He says to him, Simon, Simon, that's my old name. I'm going to show him. I'm still rocky. I'm going to show him. I'm going to show everybody how strong I really am. So he pulls out the sword and he did it out of the flesh. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And there can be this Simon-like tendency in us to say, I'm going to show people just how strong and dedicated I really am, how together I am, and watch this, wham, in our seal, we're doing things and serving the Lord even out of the flesh rather than being led by the Spirit of God. So here is Peter. He, he chops off Malchus's ear. Jesus heals it. They arrest Jesus. 
Verse 48, then Jesus answered and said to them, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to take me? I was daily with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me, but the scripture must be fulfilled. Then they all forsook him and fled. So at this point, all the disciples scattered, ran away for their own safety. None of them stood by Jesus and said, I've given my life to this man. What you accuse him of, you accuse me of. Instead, it was fulfilled of what Jesus said, All of you will be made to stumble because of me. So now it's every man for himself. They make a run for it, all the disciples. In verse 51, Now a certain young man followed him, having a linen cloth thrown around his naked body, and the young men laid hold of him, and he left the linen cloth and fled from them naked. There are many commentators and Bible teachers that, that agree that this certain young man here, spoken of in verses 51 and 52, is John Mark himself. I tend to think it is John Mark. He is there in the garden. He's the only one in the gospel narratives that speaks of this young man. And it's like John Mark is saying, I was there. I was there. I was there, so I'm going to insert this. Some have suggested even, and this is just a suggestion. You may think about it, but some have suggested that maybe even, perhaps, just maybe, we don't know for sure because the scripture doesn't tell us, that John Mark could have been the rich young ruler that came to Jesus. You remember the rich young ruler that came to Jesus and asked him the way to eternal life and Jesus said, go and sell all that you have and, and, and then come and follow after me. And the rich young ruler went away sad. You remember that? He had great possessions. Perhaps, just perhaps, it was John Mark. And, and this here incident recorded for us here in verse 51 is John Mark's way of saying, I did it. We know John Mark was from a wealthy family. But I believe this is John Mark. It, it perhaps is a way of him saying, I did do it. I went and sold all that I had and gave it to the poor. I only had a robe that was left. And that night he came to follow him. And in the confusion and in the abruptness of the arrest, they laid hands on me. I even lost my robe, and he became the first streaker in the Bible. He fled away naked, it says. Maybe it was Mark's way of explaining to us how we got the account of Gethsemane. You see, none of the other disciples could really give the full account. Eight of them were in part of the garden, some distance away from Jesus. Three of them were close to Jesus, but they're sleeping. They didn't hear him praying. They didn't see the angel come and minister to Jesus. One of them's betraying him. So somebody was watching a certain young man was watching the whole thing to give us this story that, listen, that we may have hope in the hour of our Gethsemane. And every single one of us that are here, you will go through an hour of Gethsemane where you're going to be pressed, where you're going to be distressed, where you're going to be sorrowful in your life. And this account here shows us that we can go to a father that loves us and we can say to him, Lord, not my will, but your will be done. And Lord, I know that I can trust you. And Lord, you're going to give me the strength to get through this time that I am going through. And you're going to give me the strength to be able to carry on and to move on. And Lord, I can come to a throne of grace and find mercy and grace and help in my time of need, in my hour of Gethsemane. 
And so they led Jesus away to the high priest, and with him were assembled all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes. But Peter followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest, and he sat with the servants and warmed himself at the fire. Notice the very careful way that Mark sets the scene for us. Jesus is led to the house of the high priest. First of all, we know from John's account that he went to the house of Annas, who was the power behind the high priest's office, and then he would stand here before the Sanhedrin council, that is, that 70 members that would make up the Sanhedrin of the chief priests and the scribes, plus their servants and their advisors and their helpers. So really, there's a considerable crowd that would be gathered in this inner room at the residence of Caiaphas, we were told, the high priest. And there is Jesus bound up in the midst of these religious elite. And just outside in the courtyard was Peter. Peter sitting with the guards. He's around the fire on that chilly spring night there in Jerusalem. And Mark is careful to point out, look, verse 54, I want you to, to notice once again, Peter followed Jesus at a distance. You know one way that you will receive a chill, feel cold spiritually? Just follow Jesus from a distance. Peter should have been praying. He was sleeping. He was slumber. When the arrest comes, Peter reacts according to the flesh. And you will find yourself spiritually sleepy, slumber. You're no longer praying. You're no longer reading the word. You will find yourself reacting in the flesh, doing ministry even, and serving out of the flesh, even though you're trying to show people how spiritual you are. And eventually you will feel a coldness that is in your heart, and you will follow the Lord from a distance is what will happen. Be careful. Don't pull back. Don't neglect prayer and reading the word and the study of the word. Otherwise, you're going to feel a coldness within you. You see, Peter was feeling it not only physically, but spiritually. And this, of course, is going to lead to his denying the Lord. Another question that we can ask ourselves as we're just honest before the Lord and present our hearts to the Lord this morning, was there a time that you were following the Lord more closely? But then something happened. Maybe, maybe it was just the schedules that you had began to get very crowded. There were the activities and and the hobbies even that you got caught up in, and pretty soon you find yourself that you're following the Lord from a distance. You're still following Him, but no longer you're close at hand. And you're becoming lethargic and apathetic and sleepy. And Peter here was sleeping. He ends up chopping off an ear, and he's following the Lord from a distance, and eventually he's going to deny the Lord. And you see, the same thing happens to us who follow the Lord from a distance. You'll become so chilled. Listen, here he is at the fires. And these are not friendly fire that he's at here. He's in the courtyard of Caiaphas. And he goes over to the fire to warm himself. If you are feeling chilly, cold spiritually, there's going to be the enemy going, come over here and warm yourself over here. That's what's going to happen. Come over here. Come warm yourself here. Maybe it's... Going back to the old ways, the old hangouts. And understand this, if you do that, and you fall prey to that, you're going to end up getting burnt. You're going to end up getting burnt. So be careful. Peter here is about ready to get burned, falling from a distance, feeling cold, sitting at the fires of God's enemies. And while he's there inside, verse 55, now the chief priests and all the council sought testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimonies did not agree. Then some rose up and bore false witnesses against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with hands, and within three days I will build another made without hands. But not even then did their testimony agree. The, the trial is 
clearly a farce. The outcome is, is determined long before the trial even took place because remember that the religious leaders, they're determined to put Jesus to death. And as you look at this, the trial was illegal from the beginning because, first of all, it was held at night. And Jewish law said that there was to be no trials at night, that when there's meetings, when there were procedures, where there was a trial for criminals, that it was to be held during the daytime. Secondly, there, they are meeting in the wrong place. There was to be a place designated for them to have their hearings and meetings and trials. And it was not here at the residence of Caiaphas. So this trial is illegal, plus we know that this trial is a setup and it's an ambush. Things are not going well, though, for the high priest because we read that though there are many false witnesses against him, the witnesses, as they come together, they did not agree. So these witnesses, one by one, would recount even the same event that there was a lot of discrepancy it was very obvious. They are either telling a lie or they hadn't been there or something serious was wrong with their testimony. And so the best testimonies perhaps that money could buy, everything's falling apart here. And the priests, I imagine, are getting a little bit uneasy and restless because the testimony of the witnesses, they did not agree. Hey, we heard him say, I'll destroy the temple in three days. I'll build uh, another made without hands. Now remember in John chapter 2 that Jesus had actually said that destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days. But he wasn't speaking of the temple that was made of stones and gold. He was speaking of his body. He was speaking of his resurrection. Destroy this temple, my body, and I'm going to raise it up in three days, which he did. And then we see the high priest is going to do something entirely illegal. He will attempt to put Jesus on the spot and force him to incriminate himself, verse 60. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, saying, Do you answer nothing? What is it, what is it these men testify against you? But he kept silent and answered nothing. And again the high priest asked him, saying to him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Isaiah the prophet would write in Isaiah chapter 53, Yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, as a sheep before its shearers is silent. He opened not his mouth. And Jesus, in verse 62, said, I am, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. So Jesus, who is under oath, as we know from Matthew's account, a very solemn oath, and he says, I am, as the high priest asked him, are you the Christ? Are you the Messiah? Are you the Son of the Blessed? I am. There are those doubters and skeptics and those who come against our Lord that will say that at no time did Jesus ever claim to be Messiah. You can turn him to this passage and many other places where very clearly he claims to be the Messiah, the Son of God, the Christ. He claims deity. This is one of the clearest because he's under solemn oath to tell the truth. I am. I'm the Messiah. I'm the Son of the Blessed, the Son of God. There's no doubt about it. And the rest of his response is directed at the high priest, and you're going to see the Son of Man coming in clouds and in great power. That's my destiny. And then as we finish this morning, then the high priest tore his clothes and said, What further need do we have of witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they all condemned him to be deserving of death. And then some began to spit on him and to blindfold him and to beat him and to say to him, Prophesy. And the officers struck him with the palm of their hands so high priest he becomes unglued here and he stands up and he tears his clothes and he says it's blasphemy we've heard enough condemn him to death condemn him to death and they begin to beat him they blindfold him they begin to mock him 
And Jesus' suffering here begins at the hands of the high priest, the high priest that was the high priest of that religious system that had become so corrupt. But here is the true high priest, as Hebrew declares. He is our great high priest who went and died for you and for me. And now we're going to see that his sufferings are really going to intensify as they begin to beat him, and then he will go through more beatings and suffering as he makes his way to Calvary, and we'll look at that next time. But this morning, maybe you're here. It's the things that we've talked about. I want to pray for you. I want to pray for anybody that is here this morning that maybe you've never come into a relationship with Jesus Christ, that you would know clearly as we've discussed that he is your way to salvation. But maybe you're here this morning and you need special prayer. Maybe you've been following the Lord from a distance. I want to give you opportunity uh, to just respond to what God has put on your heart and how he's touched your heart and for me to be able to pray for you. So I want this time for us to, to just be still. There will be no moving around right now and no getting up at this time unless you absolutely have to and you need to leave. But just for us to go to the Lord because he's not through with us. He still desires to minister to us. As Father, we go to you. And I ask that you would just, Lord, help us to be still right now as, as we just come and, Lord, as we just right now set our hearts on you and the teaching that we've just heard. We thank you for this account given to us of Jesus going to Calvary's cross, Lord, because we see his love demonstrated that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And he went freely and he went willingly. He went because he took on the cup of suffering and death, knowing that there's no other way for us to have any hope of salvation. And I just want to pray for anybody that is here this morning that if you've never received Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you've never never committed your life to him, that you would understand that the gospel is this, that we have all sinned, every single one of us, and salvation doesn't come by being a good person or trying to be good. It doesn't come by, by belonging to a church, as good as that can be, or, or even hearing a Bible study. It comes by putting your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. You saying, Jesus, I know that you're calling me to surrender. I believe you're the Christ, the Son of the living God who died for me. You shed your blood for the forgiveness of sin. And the scripture says that you're to repent, that is, change direction and surrender your heart to Jesus. He loves you. There's no other way to salvation. And if you're here this morning or in a coffee shop or anyone who's listening to this message on the radio, that you've never surrendered your heart to Jesus Christ, you don't know if you have a relationship with God because it only comes through Jesus, that now you can know as you give your heart to him. And you pray, Jesus, come into my heart and be my Lord and Savior. I am a sinner, and I confess it. And I believe that Jesus did indeed go to the cross at Calvary and died for me because of his love for me. Jesus, be my Lord and Savior. I surrender to you completely. Lord, I turn to you for salvation because I know and believe that you're the only way to heaven is through the cross at Calvary. I believe that Jesus rose from the dead and he's touching my heart. Thank you, Jesus, for hearing my prayer and for forgiveness. And if anybody prayed that prayer this morning in the sanctuary, even if you're out in the coffee shop, what I want you to do is raise your hand so 